and welcome back to Spotlight, the monthly podcast that discusses issues pertinent to child health with guests who make you think about areas not usually explored. I'm Rachel Becker, Senior Editor of Archives of Disease and Childhood, and this is ADC Spotlight. Today I'm speaking with Professor Julie Mitten, Professor of Public Health at the University of West England in Bristol, a UK Director of the NIHR Global Health Research Group on Nepal Injury Research. And with Professor Sunil Kumar Joshi's Head of Department in Community Medicine, Nepal Director of the Nepal Injury Research Centre at Kathmandu Medical College, affiliated to Kathmandu University, and Visiting Professor at the University of West of England in Bristol, UK. Welcome, Julie and Sunil, and thank you for giving your time. Thank you. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. Before we discuss the paper that you published in uh, in archives, and which you can introduce a bit later, I wondered whether we could talk a bit about uh, the context of the research that you did. Okay, thank you, Rachel. I would like to talk a little bit about the population characteristics in Nepal, approximately 40% of the population is under the age of 18, as the large population of the country is young. And I think that making investment in the young population, mainly in children and adolescents, is very important. You know, it's important in shaping national development. According to our national census 2011, there are 126 caste or ethnic groups, you see, in our country. And there is a caste called Chetri that constitutes the largest caste or ethnic groups, having 16.6% of the total population in Nepal, followed by Brahman. And I would like to tell you about a caste called Tamang. It comes in the fifth position in the national population in the Mokwanpur district where we conducted our study, you know, Tamang came, you know, in the first position, approximately 45.3% of people in Mokwanpur district, they belong to Tamang ethnic group. Thank you, Sunil. So what I'm hearing from that is that the population will have a large number of, of children, say, Roughly defined as under 18s, exactly. And there, and then also, there is uh, in Nepal a large number of ethnicities, but in the district that you conducted the research, uh, there's a predominant population of a, an ethnicity which is also associated with a caste system. Now, if we circle back to the paper epidemiology of paediatric injuries in Nepal, evidence from emergencies, department injury surveillance. Maybe we can talk a bit to, uh, now we've situated the uh, the research, the the uh, significance of this research in the in the wider context of injuries in children. Julie, could you could you talk to that? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Rachel. There's often a bit of a disconnect between what the public think about injuries and the way we tackle injury prevention uh, in public health because I think there can be a general perception that that injuries are all about bad luck and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But what we know from science is that 
that injuries are the fairly predictable outcome of particular sets of circumstances. And if we can spot those circumstances, then we've got the opportunity to intervene and prevent the injury from happening. We also know that, that injuries don't happen equally across society. Those that are live in the most disadvantaged circumstances tend to be the ones that are most likely to get injured. And that's true both within the UK, but it's particularly true when we look across the world and we th see that 90% of global injuries occur in people living in low middle income countries. So that's why, you know, this is a really important topic to tackle in Nepal, because in order to work out how to prevent injuries, we really need to understand the circumstances of those injuries. And that's really relevant to the context in which those children are growing up. So if we can work out who was injured, where people were injured, uh, when, what they were doing at the time of the event, what the mechanism of the injury event was, then we can start thinking about um, who can we target, uh, what are the interventions that we can do in order to, to help prevent some of those injuries. So data is really, really important if we want to actually prevent some of these avoidable uh, injuries that happen to children. Mm, thank you. So, so that's quite an important framing going from injuries just happen to there are ways, systematic ways of uh, understanding and preventing those injuries uh, to happen. And in terms of statistics and just of trying to focus people's minds is that injuries in terms of morbidity and mortality uh, are a major contributor uh, to, to that worldwide and uh, potentially uh, more so than infections. Is, is that correct or is that maybe a bit too much to be said? I think what's happened over the over the past few decades is we've made tremendous progress in tackling uh, infectious diseases and on a global scale as we get better at tackling infectious diseases non-communicable diseases and injuries become a greater proportion of the causes of, of morbidity and mortality across the world so currently there's about 10 percent of global deaths are due to injury and if we assume that the majority of those deaths are preventable, there is a huge potential to make a difference for those families and those uh, communities. When I hear making making a difference, my attention then went to to the both of you, Sunil and and Julie. So, what what drew you to this work? As Professor Julie Meaton has correctly pointed out, you see there is a paradigm shift in mainly the disease in the developing countries. Now, the health system, you know, the government of Nepal is focusing more on non-communicable diseases, but still talking about that, when we talk about injuries, you see there is less focus on the prevention of injuries. So when you talk about the non-communicable diseases, the government is focusing more on respiratory diseases, let us say bronchial asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases, cardiovascular diseases, cancers, but there is less focus on injury prevention, you see. So I've been working for some time in the field of injury prevention here in Nepal and working with the government and the World Health Organization. And you see, whenever we talk on injury and whenever we talk on the mainly 
the prevention of injuries, always we stalk in lack of evidence, lack of data. So, and the government has also come with few policies on injury prevention. Let us say, you know, even the road traffic injuries, it has national action plan for the prevention of road traffic injuries. But such action plans, such policies, they do not work because, you know, they are not based on evidences. I wonder whether you could talk to each from your own perspective, what, what it means to be able to straddle the organizations that have to come together uh, to make this work happen. There are so many different same-minded and you know, similar-minded organizations here working in the field of injury prevention. So it was really very helpful that we had this collaboration with the University of West of England, mainly Professor Julie Mitchell and also the University of Bristol, you see. So that was quite a good meeting of different stakeholders in the field of injury prevention in Nepal, participated by all government officials it was inaugurated by the Minister of State at the Ministry of Health and Population. The meeting was supported, you know, attended and supported by the high-ranking government officials, including, you know, representatives from the World Health Organizations and the Embassy of the UK here in Nepal and other international organizations. So that was quite appreciated by all stakeholders that we at least started this Nepal Injury Research Center, mainly, you know, we can learn a lot from our context here in Nepal. And that will be also, you know, really very helpful for other countries with very similar socioeconomic and geopolitical background. And the findings from our research here in Nepal that can be replicated, you see. Thank you, Sunil. So, so there's a, there, was, there was quite a high-profile uh, inauguration uh, to uh, signify the, uh, the importance of the, uh, of the work, and I'm sure there's been a, a lot of hard, hard blood, sweat and tears to get to, uh, to, get that, to that point. J- Julie, would, would you agree with that, or would you say... Absolutely. I think Sunor sort of summarised it really well. It's the people that make the collaboration work. And um, and it, it's there's a, there's a degree of mutual learning that goes on. So Sunor's and his colleagues, my other Nepali colleagues, are so helpful in helping me understand the Nepali culture and context in which these injuries are happening, because if we can't understand that, we're just going to interpret our data completely wrongly. But also, you know, my role is to help Sunil and the team interpret the, the funding provider landscape in the UK, you know, all the rules and regulations about what we have to do and all the reporting and helping to navigate that side of it. So that shared common passion is, is really important to underpin the collaboration and that mutual respect and trust, which, which can only actually, I think, be developed by physically meeting each other and, and spending time together and working together. And in the early days of our collaboration, we were fortunate enough to I was fortunate enough to be able to go and spend time in in Nepal to do that. And of course, in the middle of our program of work, we had a, we had the COVID pandemic hit, and that kind of 
brought into play the practical elements of making a collaboration like this work. Um, we were very fortunate in that because we'd built those shared relationships, we were able to shift relatively seamlessly to a remote working model. And because Kathmandu now has relatively good internet access, uh, we were able to move to a process where we were just sort of communicating daily via online Teams channels or whatever, and set up good shared storage for files and data remotely. And uh, um, we were able to continue to deliver our project despite everything else that was going on in the world at that time. It's mm, quite extraordinary. Um, we've all felt the um, uh, the pandemic in, uh, in different ways and, and to be able to still deliver the research, that's very commendable. I wonder whether we could go to the to the paper itself now and um could you summarize what it is that you did and what you felt that the results have um, given us in terms of learning we were really keen as i say to understand you know who was getting injured and how people were getting injured in nepal and um, we first of all looked at existing data sources so um in nepal they have a hospital management information system which is a bit like the the uk hospital episode statistics where they record people that come into hospital but we knew from the work that we'd done and talking to other people that that the data that was collected through the hospital management information system was really at a quite a basic level. It was sort of count data of who was coming into the hospital and there was very little demographics or anything alongside it. Uh, there were also concerns about how complete it was. So we felt that if we wanted to capture the data we needed, we needed to set up our own system. So we worked with two hospitals in Makwampur district, a government hospital and a private hospital, who both received uh, minor and major trauma. We worked with the hospital management committees and the clinical teams in their emergency departments, and we were able to set up a system whereby we embedded data collectors in those teams, in both hospitals, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, for the year of our study. The data collectors were clinically trained uh, people. So they were often, they were students that had recently finished a, an undergraduate degree in some sort of healthcare science. And they were additional staff within the departments. And that was quite important because the teams in these hospitals were really small. Uh, they were very busy departments. And one of the things that was essential was that we didn't disrupt the ability to deliver routine clinical care. So the data collectors were there working a shift system able to capture everybody that came into the hospital who had an injury and they collected their information using handheld tablet computers which were pre-loaded with a questionnaire and once the patient had had their immediate uh, trauma needs met, their clinical care was had been given and they were clinically stable, then in agreement with the clinicians, our data collectors would then go and ask them if they would be prepared to give some information about what happened to them anonymously into our data set. And we had really good um, participation in this. I think the in collecting all the data anonymously was really important to encourage people to take part. But we collected data about who they were, what had happened to them, uh, and the circumstances of their injury. And we were then able to upload that information to a remote data server and analyse it. 
And Ratili, I just want to add here, as Professor Julie Mitten has just pointed out, there is hospital management information system in Nepal that collects data on injuries, but it's very interesting, you know, they do not collect complete data on injuries, you see. They just report it in the form of the body part affected mm. by the injuries, you see. So if you want to prevent injury, you know, based on data, it is almost very difficult to do that. So we just tried, we just try to see, you know, if injury surveillance is possible in Nepal or not. Mm. So what did you find? What we found was over the course of the year, uh, we had about over 10,000 people of all ages attended the emergency departments with an injury. And and of them, um, just under a third, so there were uh, 2,600 children uh, were injured attending those hospitals. And um, the commonest causes of injury was what we were expecting, uh, which was falls, which is not surprising considering the the topography of Nepal. It's a very mountainous country. Um, lots of people live in rural communities um, uh, in very hilly areas. Um, and typical Nepali homes, a, a rural home in a Nepali uh, village would be a sort of two-story wooden structure with an open staircase and a, and a balcony running around the house at the at the level of the first floor, which is often unfenced. So falls within and around the home are very common. And that's certainly what we saw with uh, 36% of our uh, uh, childhood injury uh, admissions uh, attendances were, were due to falls. Um, but the other common causes were uh, animal bites, Uh, So over a quarter of the injuries attending the hospital were animal bites, almost exclusively dog bites. Um, That's very important because there are a great many stray dogs in Nepal and rabies is endemic. And we think that uh, one of the reasons we got a lot of dog bites attending the hospital is because the public know about rabies and they're, they're very anxious that if they get bitten, they know they should come to the hospital for treatment. So... Um, lots of animal bites and then road traffic injury was the third commonest cause of of uh, attendance um what was also quite interesting is what we didn't see so we didn't see lots of attendances for burns and scalds despite us knowing that lots of families cook on open stoves or very basic cooking facilities and that burns do happen in the community. But our understanding is that a lot of those are being treated at home or being treated uh, locally and they're not presenting to the hospitals. Um, and we also didn't see um, children, many children presenting with poisonings or with um, uh, near drowning episodes, uh, which we know happened during uh, the monsoon season. So, yeah, it was very interesting to see what we didn't capture and what we did capture. Um, We had a small, almost all of the injuries, 95% of them were unintentional harm, but we had a small number of intentional harm injuries, mostly in the older children. Um, uh, Poisoning, self-poisoning, and also attempted suicide. Uh, We had a, a small number of fatal cases um, but those that were fatal were more likely to be where, where people were, were causing self-harm. The description there, Julie, g- 
gives rise to the potential for prevention. So it will be starting with what it is that you did see and understand, uh, and then what might you be able to put in place to prevent those instances from happening, be that um, when, when we're playing around the house, um, uh, encountering encountering dogs, um, and also, as you say, what you didn't see, um, but you know is happening, and what interventions might need to be placed there. Uh, Sunil, would you would you would you comment on that? Yeah, there are so many injury cases. You know, they are treated locally. You know, at the household or in the, maybe some you know local healers or something like that. And also, you know, it is really very interesting. You see, if they do not suffer from open cut injuries, you know, they don't consider such injuries as serious injuries, you see. So the children are not brought immediately to the hospitals or health centers immediately in many cases after the injury occurs. So whenever, when they are brought to the hospitals, it's a little, little bit complicated. And one of our Inclusion criteria in our study was, you know, the injury must have happened in the last one week, seven days. So if the injury has happened more than seven days back, then we didn't include such injury cases in our study. So maybe that could be one reason that, you know, we have missed such cases or such cases do not appear in the emergency department. They go, they go directly to the outdoor patient departments, maybe the surgery, maybe the orthopedics. So such cases are, I think, missing. And also, you see, I just want to add something here. In Nepal, we have female community health volunteers who are, who are used widely in the prevention of non-communicable disease and also, you know, mainly reproductive health programs. So I think we may train those female community health volunteers as well to find such injured children in the community and counsel them to take to the hospitals. There is somewhere where we could do some intervention to female community health volunteers or other, you know, community health volunteers. So that is also something we have learned from our injury surveillance and other studies conducted by Nepal Injury Research Center. Mm. So, so being more proximal to to the families so that they don't need to travel, and also using knowledge that is is present uh, in where they where the uh, families live. What what else has been uh, has been done with the information that you've gleaned? So the findings from our study, you know, those information, I, I've been trying to you know disseminate them at the national level meetings. So in the last one month, I, I have been having you know a lot of meetings with the government officials, and I was really very surprised that they are reading our publications. You know, in a meeting with the World Health Organization here in Nepal, they appreciated the groundbreaking, you know, research activities we are conducting. So they are reading all those findings and based on the findings of our studies, I'm so happy and so privileged to say that the Ministry of Health and Population here in Nepal has prioritized injury prevention activities for 
2022, you know, we have a book called Red Book, you know, prepared by the government. And usually the Red Book contains high priority activities in Nepal. And they have now included injury prevention activities in the Red Book in Nepal. Let us hope that soon we will start injury surveillance in our country and they expect a lot of technical assistance from Nepal Injury Research Center, from the UK colleagues and from the researchers who work here. That is something very good. Oh, fabulous. Fabulous. And also that's really a uh, an ongoing embedding of the of the structure and then building on what what you've learned uh, so far. I mean that's that's very encouraging. So to maybe to round off, let's go forward to twenty thirty. What does twenty thirty look like if you had your wishes come true? Julie? I think uh what would be a fantastic outcome from this uh, programme of work we've been doing is if there was, um, even if not a national surveillance system, at least a sentinel surveillance system going on in Nepal for injuries, um, you could just having one hospital in each of the seven provinces in Nepal where there was interest and investment and training and there was really good quality injury data being captured we could that could really inform the decision making at the policy level and help direct um, the government to help work out where should they be investing and targeting their energies there's a, a great deal of um, evidence-based guidance that's that's available from the World Health Organization about how we can prevent falls, road traffic injuries, um, dog bites and rabies. Um, and we could uh, implement that guidance appropriately and contextually uh, in a culturally relevant way if we, we knew where to target it. So I think that would be a hugely uh, advantageous outcome if we could manage to do that. Um, and, and I think that that just sort of recognition that, that these things do need some investment and they need that ongoing training and infrastructure support in order to make them happy, that would, uh, to make them happen, that would be a, a really valuable output. Thank you. Sinal? I fully agree with Julie, but I would rather go one step ahead, you know, and be more optimistic. In 2030, you know, still a long way to go. So I think we should have big goals ahead, you see. So what I, I would wish for is, you know, there should be a resilient health system in Nepal to address injury prevention. So the government should include, you know, injury prevention activities in all policies. So injury prevention in all policies in Nepal. And we have very good post-incidence, post-injury management, you know, post-incidence management of injuries in paper, in the policies. I wish that happens in practice. So that is a very important thing. I wish that, you know, we have a resilient injury surveillance system in place by 2030. And of course, it is doable. Injury is multi-sectoral issue, so there should be good intersectoral and intergovernmental. Now, with this new political system in Nepal, we have central level government 
provincial government and the local government. So there should be intergovernmental collaboration for injury prevention in Nepal. And that is lacking at present. So if we could see that by 2030, that we would be really very happy. And we would think that, you know, all this hard work has, you know, paid off. Ah, fabulous. Well, thank you both so much for joining us at AGC Spotlight. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, And I've, I've learned loads. Thank you, Rachel. Okay, thank you, Rachel. Thank you for listening. We publish regular podcasts about some of the best content of archives of disease in childhood. The papers discussed in ADC Spotlight will be available free of charge for a month after the podcast episode releases. If you don't want to miss us, please subscribe on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, to get the podcast directly on your device each month. We'd also like to hear from you, so please leave us a review on the Archives of Disease and Childhood podcast page on iTunes. Thank you, and until next month.